Welcome back to another episode of the Leading Saints podcast. If you've enjoyed content on this podcast, it's important that I tell you about the Leading Saints newsletter that we send out every week. This newsletter keeps you up to date on all the current Leading Saints content releases, including podcasts, articles, online events, and even live events that might be happening in your own area. In this newsletter, we also recommend some past episodes and written articles that you don't want to miss. Each week, we include additional leadership perspectives and thoughts that you can only find in the weekly newsletter, so you definitely don't want to miss out. To subscribe to the weekly newsletter, simply text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe. Welcome back to the Leading Saints podcast. Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through content creation, much like this podcast. We have articles at leadingsaints.org you should check out. A weekly newsletter you should subscribe to also has unique content. So let's jump into this week's episode. All right, today I'm in uh, Provo, Utah with uh, Jeff Burningham. How are you, Jeff? Kurt, good. I'm really good. How are you doing? Great. And your name is known for many things. I'm not sure <laughs> sure where to start exactly. Most recently, you ran for governor. Yeah, hopefully in good Utah. things, Kurt. I hope, you know, not too many bad things. But I did, yeah, I ran for governor in Utah and lost, unfortunately. But it was a great experience, really interesting. I'm not a politician. My background is entrepreneurship, but I'm in a phase of my life where I'm really searching to have impact and to give uh-huh. back and serve. And, you know, after a lot of thought and prayer and a lot of conversations, yeah, we just, Sally and I, my wife and my family, we decided to jump in. And it was an interesting ride, especially during COVID, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's such an interesting experience as I, you know, looking from the outside in, because uh, politics, you know, has the, the cliches, you know, the, the, of just being dirty and, you know... <laughs> It's just I a, think those cliches are there for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I may, I maybe could even say that more after yeah. having done it. Yeah. yeah. So, and obviously, you know, Governor Cox was the lieutenant governor. So he's, yeah. that sort of gives you a head start there. And then, you know, John Huntsman was a former governor. So that gave yeah. him a head start. And so coming in, I mean, you were, as far as in the political circles, you were a no name, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, my background is entrepreneurship. I've started several companies here in Utah, employ seven or 800 people, real estate, technology have funded most of the up and coming startups along the Silicon Slopes, which is a really uh-huh. exciting success story here in Utah. But I didn't have a background in politics. Yeah. I really came at this. And in fact, I had a little visit with President Ballard. And I don't remember, do you remember his talk several years ago? In it, he spoke about how good men and women should try to stand up and should run for public office if they were able to, financially able to, and time they were able to, and felt compelled. And I'd say that that really matched Sally and I's feeling as we felt compelled to do it. uh, We're in a position that we could do it. So so we stepped up and yeah, those are great people. It's it's crazy, Kurt. My first political debate, I was People ask me, have you ever run for politics before? I was my high school student body president. I don't think that really counts <laughs> for yeah. much. Yeah, yeah. Although that was really fun and I love my school and love my friends and those that I served with. But I really don't have a background in politics. I'd been a precinct chair here in Provo. But so my first debate, I mean, it's in St. George, Utah. It's January 2020, really early in January 2020. And I'm literally sit- to my right is Spencer Cox, Lieutenant Governor, who's a uh-huh. friend of mine, but 
man, he's been a politician for a long time, kind of climbed the ladder and had a ton of experience, was the current lieutenant governor. And to my left was another friend of mine I've known for business and a, a great guy, John Huntsman, who ran for president. And right. I'm sitting yeah. <laughs> here in front of a couple thousand people. This is my first political debate. And uh-huh. here I am sandwiched between these two very seasoned politicians. But I'll tell you what, I had such peace during that debate. I think it went really well. I did really well. I was just happy. And I was happy because I was really there, I think, Kurt, for the right reasons. Like yeah. I was just trying to serve that. I think politics or you know, politicians, there should be a season of service. You should get in, try to get some good things done and, and get out. And my heart was in the right place. I'd gone through a process to get there. And so I had a great time. And it was a really interesting experience. And we could talk about it forever if yeah. you wanted. Yeah, well, it really uh, it's, it's intriguing for sure. And, 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 and I don't mean to generalize sort of the Latter-day Saint experience, but when a Latter-day Saint maybe wants to have influence and step up, like you said, we typically think, well, you know, if the Lord wants me to serve or have influence, he'll call me as some type of bishop or a Relief Society president or on the ward council to have influence or or we turn to maybe local charities or we turn to just our business life. But rarely do we think maybe this means I step up into a politics. So what encouragement yeah. you give to others that maybe they want to make a difference, but politics just, and, and really you're speaking to me, that's like the last thing I'd ever want to yeah. do. But. Well, I understand, right? And I think everyone would understand politics is so ugly. We are so divided mm-hmm. as a nation right now. And I'll be honest, it was heartbreaking for us in a lot of ways. We had great friends lean in and support us and, you know, support us financially and vocally and on social media. But what I'm actually really saying more, support us emotionally, Hmm. be a shoulder to cry on, be there for us when things were hard, because things were hard. My wife, you just met my beautiful wife real quickly. She's a sweet soul. We had never, we've had some business success. I've won some awards, you know, so we've been in the spotlight a little bit, but never like this. And so to have arrows thrown at you. And the other thing is when you start a startup, you start in ambiguity, Aaron, and uh, no one knows, no Uh one cares. When I started, quote unquote, this startup, I started on the Capitol steps. There was tons of media there. I immediately went on a media roadshow and very quickly, there were kind of arrows coming at us that you're not used to. And we weren't used to, she wasn't used to. So, and then there were, so we had great friends that emotionally supported us. You really need that network. But also there were some friends that were not there. They were completely absent. They were MIA, whether either because they were too busy or honestly, a lot because politics is too scary. They just did not want to take a side in this very divisive time. So let me say, first of all, there probably are easier ways to make a difference, <laughs> but if no one will step up and if, if no one who isn't a seasoned politician or hasn't kind of climbed that career political ladder, which almost all my opponents had and I had not, those are the type of politicians I like. And so if no one has the guts or courage to step up, what was the point? And really, Kurt, this is one of the reasons I ran. I come from kind of the Silicon Slopes and entrepreneurship community. I love entrepreneurs and have invested in hundreds of them with time and money here in the state, I kind of wanted to pave a way a little Mm -hmm. bit and show, look, we can do this. You know, you can step up into this. I hope I was a good good example in that regard. I may not have been. I certainly lost. So, you know, I hope that wasn't too discouraging, but it's all about being in the arena, right? In Mm -hmm. life, whether it's entrepreneurship or the church or politics. It's about being in the arena and bringing 
the God-given gifts that each of us have, that every son or daughter of God has into the arena to try to make this a better place, yeah. right? And that's, that was my MO in terms of running for governor. And- yeah. Yeah. I love that thought that, you know, leadership isn't necessarily about leading in the arena, but sometimes it's just taking that first step in the arena where if we don't do that first step, you know, we, we may not be there when they look for that leader. Right. Yeah. And like you said, so often in the church, we're, we're used to a church co- culture where we're called, right? right. Yeah. And we don't campaign. Yeah. You don't throw you your hat in the you ring. You don't or... throw your hat in the ring. You don't say, I'm available. In fact, that's a way to make sure that you're probably never really called to do much. And that's just not what we do. So we're not used to that. I'm saying yeah. generally in our culture, obviously politics, entrepreneurship, that's different. Mm-hmm. You step up, you step out and you say, I'm here. I'm an imperfect person like we all are. I have some gifts like we all do. And I think I have an interesting perspective to lend to this race, to lend to this business, to lend to this public service position. And so you got to be proactive. It's not about being reactive. I think politicians are very often reactive. That's one of the things that I would have changed just because of who I am. I'm a proactive person. I know what's coming to Utah, Kurt. We are in the midst of a magical moment here in Utah. The growth that we are seeing and experiencing, all the trends that we're seeing post-COVID, they were there before COVID, but what happened with COVID-19, those have all been accelerated. Hmm. That means massive growth for our state. That means change. That means a lot more diversity. That means a lot more uh, money. There's a lot more financial success in Utah right now than there ever has been. How do we grapple with this as a state? How do we stay true to our roots and what's made a special kind of our pioneer heritage? but move forward. It's kind of pioneering 2.0. You know, I feel like that's where we are at as a state. And so sorry, not to get, I'm not campaigning anymore. (laughs) I'm not asking for anyone's vote, but that was my vision, right? That was my vision and my outlook. And I I brought this fresh perspective because I had not been, I'm not a political animal and I had not been in that arena before, but because I had been so intimately involved in the business community, I had that perspective. And I know, last thing I'll say real quick, you know, I often have politicians, both local and our national representatives, call me and say, Jeff, you know, ask me about the economy in Utah. Is it really this hot? Is there really going to be this much growth? What's going on? And I say to them, I always say to them, you know, is it really this hot? And I say, no, it's actually stronger than you even know. Hmm. There are so many good entrepreneurs in our state. There is so much more capital than has ever been here that our state, the state, the headquarters of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints, is changing in dynamic and exciting ways. And we need good leaders to step up and make sure that we stay true to who we are. Yeah. Yeah. And the love fact is that you're not a political animal and we need more non-political animals in these in these discussions and, and whatnot. And just that idea of stepping up where, you know, I've I've done a lot of writing and and sharing this perspective as far as this concept of aspiring. And it sort of uh, has this negative connotation in the context of the church. Like it's inappropriate. You shouldn't do that. But then it bleeds over to all things in life, and we just sort of shrink into our where where we're at. We never step out or step yeah. up to really lead, and leading requires that. It doesn't always come in. Hey, we would like to endow you with leadership <laughs> uh, roles and whatnot. You know, I love that. I think there's a sweet balance in there, right? That I'm striving for personally in my yeah. life. I'm 44 years old, kind of in my midlife or half life. When I was young, I certainly aspired, right? I needed to make it. I, you know, I really worked hard to make it in business and otherwise. But I think there's a sweet spot in people's lives. I I spent quite a bit of time with former Governor Levitt while I was Mm. running for governor. 
Um, some of these other guys who kind of graduated, they're almost saintly now. They don't have a dog in the fight. They're giving advice. They just want the best for the state of Utah. And I think that's the sweet spot of service that I'm trying to live in. And we maybe we are, but where I'm not trying to aspire for anything. Once you aspire and you become a bishop, I'd like uh-huh. you have, and uh-huh. I have, or whatever else, you realize, well, I don't want to aspire for anything. I think very quickly, you're like, wow, this aspiring is a lot of work, quote unquote. Uh-huh. So you don't want to aspire, but you also don't want to shrink. Right. You also don't want to shrink from the quote unquote fight from the from the battle, from the challenge of life, from the the greatness of life. You don't want to shrink from that. You need to bring all of your energy, all of your goodness, all of your talents to things that are important to you here on this earth. That's why we are here. But you also don't need to aspire. And again, I, I think that aspiring, at least in my experience, that aspiring gets beaten out of you pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> like when you're called as a young bishop, when you've you know, done some things in leadership, you know, that, that goes away. And I think what emerges, I hope is emerging in my life. And I think these are the kind of leaders that we want to, you know, promote and support. It's just a pure desire for service and to have a positive impact on the lives of people, whether it's in the state or in the church or in your business or wherever the place may be. Those are the type of people that we want to follow. Yeah. That's awesome. So let's zoom out a little bit. Uh, where, where are you originally from? I grew up in uh, Spokane. I moved around a little bit as a youngster, but uh-huh. spent most of my time in the beautiful Pacific Northwest, Spokane, Washington. Oh, nice. That's where I grew up. Nice. Yeah, I love that place. And did you always intend to go into business or where, where did that your professional life start? Yeah, not necessarily. I love basketball growing up. You could probably see from some of yeah. the walls here. I love basketball and I was a short point guard in uh, college and was pretty good in high school. So I love basketball. My first sport, I was a quarterback in high school. So Mm. I love sports, competitive athletics. I mean, that's really where I wanted to be. I was interested in in media at the end. My undergrad at BYU was in communications. So I've always been interested in media. I mean, that probably has spawned, you know, I have a podcast now, The Extraordinary Us, as you know, that I'm really excited about. That's probably kind of led into that, that interest in media. But I've also been always kind of been a self-starting entrepreneur. I remember a funny, growing up in Spokane, Washington, we were a solid middle-class family. My parents were awesome. I had five little brothers and a sister. And as I recollect this story, there was a door-to-door salesman that knocked on our door and said, hey, you know, they were selling a carpet cleaner. I, my mom went and answered. I said, mom, what was that? They're selling a carpet cleaner. And the kind of the immediate thought that I had was, mom, we lived across from our elementary school and I knew you know, dentists or doctors in our ward or whatever the case may be. I said, let's buy that. Will you buy that carpet cleaner for me? I'll start cleaning carpets, you know, at the elementary school and the <laughs> oh, preschool cool. and my kids, uh, my, my, uh, my brothers and sister. And, uh, you know, hopefully pay for these competitive basketball camps and stuff like that. So started a little, I guess you could call it business as a youngster cleaning carpets. And so I've always kind of had that proactive in strategic mind in terms of business and finance and started my first tech company as an undergrad at BYU. And so since then have kind of been starting many businesses. And shortly, I'd say after my mission, realized I really love business. I love entrepreneurship. I think this is what I would like to you know dedicate my life to. I, I have found 
that entrepreneurship is an accelerated path of learning. Have you found that? You're an yeah. entrepreneur oh, sure. right now, kind yeah. of <laughs> like leading saying, this is a startup. Right? Oh yeah. I mean, it's grown a lot and it's, it pales college, college pales in comparison of what I've learned sort of in the thick of it. Yeah. Know? What yeah. you learn day to day in building a business or building leading saints, it is an accelerated path of learning. Yeah, and as is. soon as I understood that, I said, that's the path for me because I want to learn. I want to be better. I want to improve. I want to be challenged. I want to be pushed. I want to fall down and fail. That's the way that we all ultimately, I believe, succeed. You know, you know, repentance or failure isn't just a part of the plan. It is the plan for us here on earth. We all fail. We all make mistakes, but hopefully we learn from those mistakes. We get up and and entrepreneurship has certainly done that for my life. And I've been so grateful for the opportunities I've had here in Utah to build companies, to work with wonderful people, to back some of the most up and coming, exciting entrepreneurs in the state. It's just yeah. been a blessing. Yeah. And it's cool to just see the the skyline change yeah. along the Wasatch Front and Provo and uh, where it's like, this is not the Utah County. I remember coming to BYU games as a little boy, you know, it's, it's transformed. It's awesome. Yeah. You saw that just driving down here, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And our firm has been the investor in almost all of those new buildings. One of cool. the first investor in almost all of those companies that you drove by. And so it's been a blessing. Those entrepreneurs have created, I mean, I'm thousands of jobs, thousands of good jobs here in the state of Utah. And I used to kind of frown upon money or feel like money was the root of all evil. Uh-huh. But now if you do it right, I think it's a service. If you're creating high paying jobs for families, I view that as service oh, now. Yeah. And I, Absolutely. I'm so proud of the entrepreneurs that we've backed and the difference they're making in, in the families' lives that they employ. It's been really fun. Yeah. yeah that's I'm cool. humbled by it all. So w- tell us the story of uh, being called as a bishop. Oh man, are you sure you want this story? Yeah, I, absolutely. I was really young. I was like 27 or 28. I was in a state. I was 28 too. So oh, really we're, cool. we're kindred spirits yeah, that so way. Yes, we are. I was in a state presidency as the executive secretary. Uh-huh. I'm coming down from meetings in Salt Lake. We usually, we had a counselor who I dearly love in the state presidency who was always 10 minutes late. We had meet, <laughs> leadership meetings Thursday at seven and I was going to be there by seven ten, which is kind of normally our start time. But my state president called me and said, while I'm driving, hustling down I-15, hey, Jeff, you know, it's, it was at seven sharp. Where are you? And I said, oh, I'm so sorry, president. I'm a couple minutes late. I'll be there in a minute. And he said, oh, take your time. Don't worry about it, you know. And so I thought that was interesting. I come into the meeting at 710 and they had started already. And what's funny is Sally and I, we were planning on going back to Boston to graduate school at this point. My sick president knew that more or less. And I sit down. And I said, sorry to interrupt, just keep going. And, and the stake president looked at me, I'm trying not to use names, but looked uh-huh. at me and said, Jeff, we just got a call from the bishop in your ward. And I knew nothing about this. And I was good friends with my bishop. And he said, we just got a call from the bishop in your ward and he's moving. And I was like, really? I'm really surprised. And he, and he just looked at me and he said, so Jeff, who should be the next bishop? <laughs> this is in the stake presidency meeting. Uh-huh. And I had hustled there and I, I'll be, I felt so convicted right there on the spot. And of course, I just said, by the spirit, I just said, President, you've like caught me off guard. Can you go to, let me think for a second, because there are a lot of good people and come back to me. So they went on to something else, came back to me in five minutes and I listed all the good names and I, I was the executive secretary. So I called five people in uh, to have an interview. I never really even had an interview. 
And then uh, those five interviews happened and didn't hear anything months go on. And then out of the blue, all of a sudden, my stake president called us in and said, hey, you're going to be the bishop. And I, I didn't even have an interview. I had felt that night. I came home that night late. My wife was already in bed and I just told her about the experience. And again, kind of had a soft witness or feeling that even though we were so young and so inexperienced and so imperfect, this might be us. But then again, pushed it off because I didn't have an interview. I never brought uh-huh. up my name. My name was never discussed in front of me. And so anyways, yeah. that's how I was called to be a bishop. It was nice. a really interesting experience. And it was here in Provo? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. The Provo, the original Provo, Utah State, kind of by Seven Peaks, if people know okay. Provo yeah. and Seven Peaks. Yeah, yeah. The original Provo, Utah so State. So pretty traditional family ward of Provo. Yep. yep. Family yeah. ward. Some young students as well. Not a lot, but some. And uh, yeah, it was a really great experience. And yeah. I enjoyed being a bishop. I learned a lot of valuable lessons, yeah. no doubt about it. It's so, really young too, you know. So hop in a time machine and go back to, to day one and talk to yourself. What what are like, if you're sitting down with Jeff yourself and say, all right, don't don't forget about this. Uh, well, what <laughs> principles would you would you share with them? Oh, Kurt, I just did this because my I have a brother who lives right outside of Chicago who was just called, a younger brother, who was just called to be a bishop. And oh, he cool. said, Jeff, yeah. what do you, you know, give me your advice. Yeah. Two main things and maybe a third kind of stick out. Number one, I remember, and you probably remember this feeling. Again, I was a young bishop. So were you. I was naive to a lot of what I was hearing or experiencing. Did you feel that way? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I I served as a counselor in the bishopric for several years. And I sort of, if you were to ask me then, I I could have said, I I have a pretty good idea what the bishop does. And it was completely different when I sent. (laughs) That's what's so interesting is like my experience, I've being a counselor and several presidencies and bishoprics, et cetera, like you don't really know what the bishop uh-huh. is doing. You don't know the load maybe that he is carrying. Right. And this was my number one and first lesson. I'd say about six months into being a bishop, I felt so weighed down, Kurt. Mm. I felt so overwhelmed. I would come home on Sundays and the way that I would phrase it to my wife is, and this is a term I coined, but like I was like an emotional shock. Mm. I don't know how... I had just seen person after person after person, old, young, people I loved and knew and respected, people I didn't know so well, whatever, that had these big issues that I was so unequipped to help them with or was not able to help them with because of my lack of experience, because I, whatever the case may be. And I remember one particular meeting with meeting with one of my young women and something really heavy being on her heart and mind. And there was a, I had a picture kind of like here of the savior Mm -hmm. behind us in in my bishop's office. And it was as if he was speaking to me, you know, Mm -hmm. and he said, Jeff, this is not, these are not your burdens. These are mine. Like all you need to do is point these people to me. So I will say after six months, my job became a lot easier. I had a much clearer perspective. I obviously knew all this, right? But it's hard to not internalize. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Don't you the feel The application like is completely different. The yeah. application is hard. It's hard not to internalize these discussions that you're having with mm-hmm. people. And I immediately knew like, this is not mine. These are not my burdens. These are his burdens that he will carry. He's already carried for us and for these people. So I just, I pointed people to the savior. And, uh, and what did that look like when you say that? I mean, in practice, what did that look like? You know, all the normal practices that you might think about. First of all, I would say, I'm not an expert here. I am a fellow traveler with you. Mm. I, I really, I started calling myself again. I, I haven't talked about this in a while. It's fun. <laughs> and I don't know if I coined these terms or if they're unique or not. I started calling myself a repentance coach. 
I would almost say like, you can call me Bishop Birmingham or whatever. That's fine. What am I? I'm a repentance coach. Yeah. Like I am helping coach you through the repentance process. By the way, that you're working out with the Savior, yeah. not with me per se. And, and it can feel so much like that. Like I meet with a bishop because you know we're negotiating repentance here. But that's not. I love that putting you in the context of a coach. Yeah, yeah. So I was a. Re, I was from the age of 28 to 33, roughly. That may be wrong a year, but I was a repentance coach. And I would just try to coach these people through the steps of repentance, turning them to the Savior, obviously to reading, to prayer. And it was really about their hearts changing, right? It's about a changed heart. It's about allowing the atonement to work within our hearts individually. I I believe that if we, when we make mistakes, when we feel down, we can either kind of get bitter, we can close up, we can close off to God, we can close off to loved ones, our spouse, our children, our father, you know, mother, et cetera, or we can open up, which is painful, and we can allow the Savior to take our heart, our broken heart, and kind of heal it and mold it to be more like his, more of a perfect heart. And so as I became kind of a witness to that process, as I became a coach, as I'll call myself, <laughs> in that process, it was miraculous. And yeah. um, it was really healing. So that that's lesson number one. Lesson number two, real quickly, it's all about the youth. What's crazy is I was kind of a youth myself. Yeah, you yeah. know, I was 28. Yeah. I don't know if you felt this way, but I was actually closer in age to my priests than I was to most of my ward members. Uh-huh. And so I remember, again, six months or a couple months in doing a fifth Sunday lesson and, and kind of telling the adults, I love you. I am here for you. We are here for you. You have issues that we need to help you with, but do all that you can to handle your own issues with God and let me focus on your kids because your kids need me, actually. Your kids, and I knew I had enough experience by that point to know your kids need me. And um, I don't remember the exact years. This is mid-2000, like this is 2005-ish. I remember texting the youth. And but at that point, the parents thought that was so miraculous and cool and like um, our bishop <laughs> cutting edge. Our, yeah, yeah, it was cutting edge. I, it's, <laughs> I know it's very routine now, but 15, 20 years ago, it was like, our bishop is texting our youth. They loved it. You know, I was so intimately involved with their children and I had such a desire to help the youth, the young men and the young women in our ward. And that was my second piece of advice to my brother, Andy, who was recently called to a bishop is focus you know, try to set systems up, try to have your counselors work with adults as much as possible. Your job is with the youth. And by the way, I I think we, I don't see that modeled well, oftentimes, like the focus that I think we should have on the youth and that they need during these trying times. So that, those are two critical lessons that I'd share. So I want to back up a little bit to this repentance coach idea. So (laughs) <laughs> sure, the X's and O's as far as the playbook. When you, when that person comes in, I mean, any advice on being a coach during in the repentance process? Yeah, I have a high level thought and some tactics. Okay, I'll cool. talk tactics about first, but I think the high level thought's even more important, and I want to see if it resonates with you. Okay, but um, number one, listen. Like you are there to listen. You are there. Number two, don't pretend to be an expert in something you're not. You have to understand that in every ward of the church, everything almost that you can possibly imagine, good and bad, is happening. <laughs> and you, there's no way, whether you're 28, 48, or 68 and a bishop, you cannot be an expert in all things and all, to all people. So don't pretend to be. 
Don't feel like you have to step up. And I mean, you do step up, but you're stepping up and pointing people to the Savior. You're stepping up and trying to model maybe what the Savior might be like. You're not, you don't save anyone and you're not there to save them. So I think don't pretend, right? Yeah. Number three, I think you are really prayerful about individuals and you pray with individuals in your office. Number four, obviously, I developed over time and a lot of counseling with members, kind of my go-to readings, right? I'm sure you did the same thing, mm-hmm. like the yeah. things that you felt really loved and resonated with them. And then we would read those together. We would talk about those together. We would discuss together. Um, so there, there are kind of four tactics. The thought I had, Kurt, when you asked the question, and I just want to say this, and I want to, I want to say this because I know there are people out there probably listening to your podcast right now that are like, this doesn't apply to me. Like, repentance doesn't apply. I've gone too far. I've done too much. I'm, I'm trash. I've, you know what I mean? Whatever the feelings may be. We all feel that way sometimes. I do, mm-hmm. at least. And I just want to say this about repentance. I was a bishop for five years. Everything under the sun happened that you could imagine. <laughs> sure, yeah. And there were two times in five years that I remember feeling what I will call the wrath of God or like, like kind of hellfire and damnation two times. Now, take into account, this is like spending 20 to 50 hours a week for five years being a bishop with people. So hearing and talking and loving and crying and with people and repenting and going through this repentance coach process, there were only two times. And, he, and I've thought about this. And here were the two ingredients. One, abuse. When someone was abusing some way, physically or uh, you know, in, in whatever way, I felt like, there, but it wasn't even just abuse. If this was an addict, if this is someone that truly had a broken heart and a contrite spirit and wanted to change, I didn't even feel like the justice of God or the wrath of God. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. It had to be abuse. And they were trying to cover that up. Mm. Like they were deceitfully trying to pretend like it wasn't happening. They were trying to cover it up. They were lying. They had this plan to abuse people. I felt like the wrath of God, like you are going to hell. Like we need to help you. And my point is, other than that, and I want to ask if you had the same experience, (laughs) Kurt, I only, and I hope I wasn't doing bishoping wrong. I hope, I really hope I wasn't, and I don't believe I was, but I only felt mercy and mm-hmm. love. Like all, no matter what I heard, no matter how outlandish it was, no matter how bad you think it might be, what I felt as the bishop and as the repentance coach of this ward for this five-year period was the love and mercy of God and the Savior upon us. Yeah. Did you Absolutely. feel Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And because it is easy to, you sort of, you know, you're grappling with this responsibility. What am I supposed to do? What's my role? What are the steps? You know, there's no training course on repentance 101 that you go through, right? And so you're trying to feel a role and you're not always sure how to do that. So you default to, well, I think I'm sort of a, a parole officer here. <laughs> yeah. And so what I'm going to do is uh, 14 days probation yeah. and uh, like come back and no sacrament and we'll yeah. talk about it later. And that comes across as you're you're punishing me. I guess I need to be punished. And it's like, wait, time out. The only punishment yeah. went to Christ and yeah. he took 100% of that. And so it's that mercy and love that we need to default to. Right? Yeah, that was my, and again, I hope I didn't bishop wrong, but 
I defaulted to mercy and love like 99.7% of the time. Yeah. And so what did that look like? Was it uh, as far as I, I, I restricted? And again, for me, I'm speaking for, right. I didn't feel like a pro officer, Kurt. Yeah. I didn't, I, Good. that's not how I handled it. Of course, there were times where people didn't take the sacrament and there was a plan, a game plan to repent right. and come back, you know, but I, I, and it'd be interesting to talk to people in my flock or in my ward, but I'm fairly confident they didn't feel like I was a parole officer either. That I just didn't have that lens. My lens was all about turning people to the Savior. My lens was all about mercy and love and using the atonement to heal. Because I, I'm trying to think, I love the New Testament. I served a mission in Charlotte, North Carolina. I got challenged in the Bible every day of my mission. Uh-huh. I came home knowing the Bible much better than the Book of Mormon from a mission in the South. Because every day I would knock on preachers' doors and they were like after us. And I'm not one to shy away from a, <laughs> a shy away from anything really, obviously running for governor and everything else. But, and so I was engaged. I was in it. I would go to their churches on Sunday. I would stand up and bear testimony in a loving way about truths of our church when they were you know, teaching false doctrine or whatever the case may be. And so I love the Bible. And I'm trying to think of a time when the Savior called out like a sinner and shamed them or like rebuked them strongly. I can think of Pharisees and Sadducees, Uh the leaders among us, by the way. Let this be a warning to the leaders among us, including myself and you and all of us. That's who the Savior called out was kind of hypocrisy. He didn't call out the woman at the well. He didn't call out the people that needed saving. He didn't call out. I mean, he was there for those people. He was trying to help and heal and save those people. And so anyways, that was my lens as a bishop. My lens was one of mercy and love. And um, anyways, hopefully hopefully I tried to. Yeah. You know, I've never heard that put in context that way. As far as the savior, when he did go after people, it was tip, typically the leaders of the church, right? the Pharisees. And and so to me, it's like, it puts an extra like emphasis yeah. on leaders say, okay, just, just take a deep breath here because yeah. you're in a position where Christ usually went after when they were being, you know, now as we call them Pharisees. Yeah. That's, that's why know. I kind of said heads up to all of us, yeah, like yeah. a gut check yeah, that's really to all of us that are leaders. And I know this podcast is about you know, people yeah. who have been leaders and are leaders now and people that are interested in leadership in the church, I think it is an extra special stewardship to be a leader and to make sure that your biases, your prejudices, your thoughts and feelings per se, the way you grew up, don't become what the recipe for the ward is. Yeah. The recipe for a successful ward, it's in the scriptures. I'm not even sure. I don't want to it's not even necessarily in the handbook. Maybe the organization of the ward success is in the handbook, but the ministering of the ward, that's not in the handbook, Kurt. You hmm. can't put that in a handbook. Right. You just said it. That's another thing that's shocking. When you're called to be a bishop, you think, and again, young bishop, I think, okay, my stake president, the previous bishop, whoever's going to tell me how to do this. No, 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 no. That's not what happens. Uh You're not given any checklist. And the point is, that's because there isn't a checklist per se. That's the administering part. There might be a checklist. The ministering part, there is no checklist. And that's something you figure out as you go. That's something where you try to purify your own heart as you're helping others purify theirs. And none of us are there. None of us have arrived and so this is a journey that we'll all, we're all on together. I don't, you know, several apostles I know, several I don't know. These are great people, but whether you're an apostle 
or a prophet or a home t- a minister and a, a nursery leader, we're all a lot more alike in my humble opinion than yeah. we are different. Yeah. Sometimes we let callings almost segregate us or put us in categories or I hate to say classes. No, we're a lot more alike than we are different. We are fellow travelers together on this journey. We need to remember that as yeah. leaders. Yeah. I hope yeah. this is helpful, Kurt. No, I don't this know. This is really man. good. I yeah. like this. And my mind also goes to uh, Christ flips some tables. So maybe that's another uh, uh, another layer of pressure for entrepreneurs that uh, keep <laughs> it out of the temple, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that is hard. It's funny. And and I will say just one thing to that, because again, yeah. I was I was a young, hard charging entrepreneur. I still kind of am, but I'm 44. Sure. When I was 16 years ago, I was even younger and more hard charging. And I had a great, I had my, I, my two counselors, my executive secretary, my young men's president are some of my dearest friends still to this day. And they know who they yeah. are. But I had a counselor who was like twice my age very seasoned and experienced. And he, he said to me very early on, this is not a business. You do, do not treat this like a business. Do not bring your business in here. Like, you know, he said it lovingly. So he didn't talk it like I talk. <laughs> but, but the point is, he was right. This isn't a business. This isn't climbing, this isn't climbing the ladder day saints. This is about service and making a difference. And so yeah, we never we didn't have any business in our in our bishopric per se, and that's a good reminder too for hard charging business leaders or entrepreneurs. I don't think you run a stake or a ward. In fact, I've had some leaders that have I felt like have tried to run a ward or a stake like a business. It's not a business yeah. like this. It's not about business. It's it's not about organization and just checking the box. That's one of the hard things that I see. We are so busy. And I get it. I have felt the pressure and I have felt overwhelmed and busy. Sometimes I feel like priesthood leaders, they're just checking a box. Hmm. You're never checking a box when you're with another soul, another son or daughter of God. You're not there to do a job. You're there to minister to this person whatever they need. Yeah. And that can't fit within your five-minute time frame. sometimes. That can't fit with your preconceived notion of how this should go or me checking something off that needs to be done, you are with the most precious thing in our world right right now, another soul. That's what you're there to minister to. And uh, sorry to get a little emotional, but... Yeah. Well, it's real. It's yeah. real. That's a really helpful. And I'm looking at, I'm at a list here of things we can, we can talk about. We've You touched on the atonement. Anything else you'd add there? Did you cover the... The main main parts that you want to cover? I, yeah, no, I, I the atonement is something that's always fascinating me, and the reason I'll just give a little more maybe in background of why it's. In, I served a mission in Charlotte, North Carolina, and like uh-huh. I said, and I was challenging the Bible every day. Shortly after my mission, I transferred to BYU while I was on my mission. I was trying to play basketball my freshman year, not at BYU before my mission, but transferred in between. And I wanted the reason I transferred. I wanted to go to Jerusalem, so I was home for about a month in Spokane, Washington. Got my water skiing and wakeboarding in, and I love that in the Pacific Northwest, still do. And then went, literally was home for a month and left to Jerusalem, to the, you know, Jerusalem, BYU Jerusalem. Uh And I studied in the Middle East for those four or five months. And I had reflective time every week, usually on the Sabbath, to sit in the Garden of Gethsemane on Mount Scopus or on the Mount of Olives and read about the atonement and the savior's the savior's words and he you know he said that life eternal is knowing him and knowing his son and 
I think that's what life is. I think that's what the atonement is about. Healing our hearts. They get broken. They're meant to, we're meant to come to earth and have our hearts broken repeatedly. Mine is broken often and has been really recently. I'm kind of on a losing streak here running for governor. And (laughs) you know, there are other things we could talk about or not, but my heart's broken and it's open and it's humbled. And what I hope is that I'm using the atonement. I'm an active participant in the atonement to allow the savior to make my heart a little more like his to, I believe that in the end we will see him as he is because our heart will be like his Hmm. or more like his. And I think the way that happens is through the atonement. And this came to me through studying the new Testament ad nauseum in my, on my mission. And then a lot of quiet time in the Holy land that I've spent studying, pondering, praying where Jesus walked and thinking about what he really did for each one of us. So anyways, yeah, that's something that's always been it's all about him, precious right? to me. It's all about him. Yeah, that's right. Anything else with, with grace we haven't touched on? I think, yeah, I, you know, I, again, so my mission and they say we're saved by grace. And in our church, we save, we say, oh yeah, we, do we believe in grace? I, you yeah, know, kind right. of yeah. <laughs> think of it. That's not a word that you hear a lot in right. church. Do you, right. do we believe in grace? You have to think about it. Yeah, I guess we do. But yeah, there's always that all, but, there's right. always a, but so what I would say about grace is, and what I started saying in my mission to build on common bridges, but I think it's true too. Obviously that's why I was saying it. No, buts. yeah, we are saved by grace period. period. <laughs> yeah. Like now there may be some other things that we can do that are good to do, but period, end of sentence, we are saved by the grace of God. None of us can quote unquote work our way into heaven. And so that's something that I'm passionate about. That's something that I think a lot about and that I wish we internalize more as a culture, the power of grace and mm-hmm. that we embrace the word grace and that we used it more in our language and that we understood that we are only saved by grace. All of us, every son or daughter of God, whether you're a Southern Baptist in Charlotte, North Carolina, whether you're a Muslim or Jew in the Middle East, whether you're boring Jeff and Kurt here in Provo, Utah, (laughs) we're only saved by grace. That's what we are saved by. And I appreciate you talking, you know, uh, reflecting as far as in our our culture and whatnot. And I have this inside joke with with my, my wife. Sometimes there's a lesson or a talk and, you know, we'll talk about it and say, you know, it was really good, but there is a little bit too much doo-doo in that talk that that I'm comfortable with. And because it's so easy, naturally, we default to this, to behaviors of, are we really praying? You know, is there more we could do? You know, are we making Mm. scriptures a priority, right? And at the end of the day, I sit there and say, hey, listen, I agree with you. These are questions worth wrestling with, but I just like want one talk at least a month or at least once a week where somebody's just saying, do you know that you are completely accepted by the Savior, Jesus Christ? Like, he loves you. There's nothing more you could do yeah. this week that, to have him love you more. There's nothing yeah. less you could do to have him love you less. Yeah. Like, he just loves you. And I just want to sit with that yeah. and just be like, oh, uh, that feels good. Like We don't have okay. enough of that yeah. and in that, our church. Yeah. Oh, sorry, in my opinion. Right, right. And, and, and I'm not necessarily even saying it's our church. It's our culture. I don't know what it is about our culture, especially maybe in Utah. But I think anywhere where there's a highly concentrated religious aspect. Yeah. And I'm curious, just the, you know, you talk about the pioneer heritage we have, I mean, and just sort of using Utah as a microcosm of the entire church, but the entrepreneur spirit, like there's yeah. this effort of like, we're going to set, we're going to set yeah. some goals and we're going to work hard. And you've been in those uh, situations where you're, <laughs> you're, your head's down, you're just working. And it's yeah. like, you get the, 
the buyout and you're like, we did it guys. Like let's party. Right. And so maybe some of that just in our spirit, we naturally reflected onto our religious experience. I don't know. I love that. Dude, I'm having fun here. Kurt. I hope you are like, this is more fun than I was even expecting. I love that idea because where you have a very, what's called an entrepreneurship bootstrap mentality. And by the way, if you were to talk about to Silicon Valley VCs, to New York based financiers, to the thing that Utah is known for, I'm saying in entrepreneurship is bootstrapping where you just hold yourself up by the bootstraps. Mm-hmm. Ryan Smith is a great example of this at Qualtrics, you know, he's the owner of the, the, owner jazz of the Utah jazz. Right. He bootstrapped Qualtrics, meaning he didn't take outside capital for, you know, five, six, seven, eight years. And that's what Utah is known for. So now mm. I'm bridging this to what you said. Yes, we have, which is, we have this mentality, but you can't bootstrap yourself to heaven. Like we cannot, you may be able to bootstrap yourself to entrepreneurial success. We have several, I'm kind of an example of that. We have several other even better examples of that. That's hard to do, but doable. What I don't think is doable. In fact, I think it's impossible is that we bootstrap our own selves to heaven. Like, thank you, father. Thank you, savior. I got this. That's not how any of us should do it. But I think too much of that creeps into mm-hmm. who we are, how we behave, how we think, how we treat others. And it's hurtful. Mm-hmm. It's hurtful. And by the way, it's not only hurtful. I think it is causes us to go down the wrong path. So often we march down the wrong path just because our language, Terrell, the Givens have a great book recently uh-huh. out about just the power of words and how puritanical our vocabulary is around religion. Mm-hmm. If we will let some of that puritanical background go and just sit in grace, like you said, and meditate, pray, and talk to the Savior, I think we'd have a whole different outlook on how we view our the church, our salvation, our role, the church's role in the world. Mm-hmm. These are all the things I like to think about, Kurt, yeah. and uh, yeah. it's cool. And I think people listening, they they want to say, Jeff, no, no, I understand what you're saying. Like, I get that we need the Savior, but come on. I mean, what else are we going to talk about on Sunday? I mean, we got to make sure those young, men's get, those young men get on missions, right? Like, we yeah. let's make sure we... And it's almost this, uh, and I don't know what, if it comes from the entrepreneur spirit or just our human nature, but there's this feeling of expectation. Like, if I don't have expectation or if I don't hold expectation for someone else then they'll never hold it for themselves. And then what? You know, then it can really go south, right? But I don't know. What are your thoughts? Here's my thoughts. Okay. I love this. Relationships versus results. Yeah. Something that I've grappled with my entire career, I am a very type A results-oriented person. Like I am trying to wean myself off this. If my wife were sitting here, she would laugh and say, Je- Jeff is crazy type A, but he has he's so much better than he used to be. I often thought about in entrepreneurship and church and everything, relationships versus results. We often have expectations for people or ourselves or our God Mm -hmm. that we place on them. These are our expectations. And when they, when those results or expectations are not met, we damage the relationship. We stop praying. We say something unkind to our coworker. We treat our family member with, disrespect because they have not met our expectation. And therefore the result that we were looking for does not happen. But 
I flip this on its head, Kurt. And again, this is the place I'm trying. Like all this in words sounds so good, doesn't it? It's in the application. (laughs) It's hard. So anyone who knows me knows that I'm not perfect at this, but I I do hope that this gives a look into my true heart or into my heart of who I am. I flip this on its head and realize what is the result we ultimately want? It's the relationship. Like that's all we want. We want an eternal relationship with our spouse. We want our kids to want to be with us forever, to choose to be with us because I can't imagine my life without mom or dad. We want to know the Savior so intimately that his image is in our countenance, Mm -hmm. that we reflect who he is and what he is. So the result we ultimately want is the relationship. So my point is, any expectation that you set up or result or plan that you have that doesn't probably strengthen the relationship or tighten the bond or connection is probably wrong. Yeah. Because the result that we all really want ultimately is intimacy in our relationships. And uh, that's what we're going for. So often we miss that because we're too busy. We're too task oriented yeah, but we got to go on a mission. You've got to check every box right at the right age. You've got to look a certain way. You know, one of the guys I love that I had on my podcast, Joseph Grenny, New York Times oh, bestseller, yeah. Crucial yeah. Conversation. I've interviewed him. He's great. He's awesome. Great. Anyways, a great friend of mine. I think it's like episode four of the Extraordinary Ass podcast. But he talks about how we come to church and we overdress and we're all about appearances instead of kind of putting our arm around the person in the pew next to us and saying, And Joseph has some experience with this, some heartache experience with this. My son's a drug addict. Your son's a drug addict. Let's just admit it. Let's just say it. And let's really help each other. Let's like wrap our arms around each other so that we can survive it. And let's figure out how we can help our kids. Instead of pretending everything's all is well in Zion. Like we all look the same. We all speak the same. We all dress the same and everything's perfect. No life is perfect, you know, yeah. so forget the charade. Anyways, yeah, I yeah, loved when Joseph, awful. that just came back to me. I love when Joseph said that yeah. on the podcast. All right, you got unity on your list. This is one of my favorite topics. So, so pull out another soapbox here. Let's hear about unity. <laughs> I feel like I'm preaching, man, today. So it's all right. Kurt and I have been friends for a little bit and he said, hey, come on the podcast. What are some things that I thought a little bit about what I want to talk about? I gave him a list of couple things yeah. that I'm passionate about. Unity, I'm passionate about. We probably all know that this is what I focused on as a bishop, number one, by the way, when I was an elders quorum president, you know, when I was in a, a BYU, YSA, bishopric, I really love unity. And, and again, it goes to some of the things that we spoke about. The church is becoming more diverse. We're becoming more of a worldwide church. That is good. That's what's supposed to happen, right? Mm-hmm. Utah is becoming more diverse. I don't know about you, but I think that's a good thing. Sure. A lot of people maybe will push back against that. I think it's a good thing. But regardless of whether you think it's good or bad, we can't stop. It's happening. Right. Yeah. You can't stop the diversification of Utah. Utah is on the map financially, the quality of life, the cost of living, the COVID concerns on the coast. People are coming here. And so how do we have unity? How do we have unity as saints? How do we have unity with people that are against us? And this is something I really focused on. As a bishop, it was kind of the number one thing that we spoke about. And we had great unity in our ward. I remember temple nights that we would have. This is something that we're familiar with as Latter-day Saints, where we would fill up the entire endowment room with our ward. And people would be weeping 
it was so powerful and meaningful because of the unity that we felt. And I think we can be unified as saints under two main things. I've I've traveled the world. If there's anything I love to do, I love traveling. My wife and I I've traveled over 50 countries and was just in the Middle East a couple of weeks ago. Mm. I love to travel and I've observed this everywhere. Charity looks really similar in Provo, Utah, as it does in Jerusalem. Integrity. And I could tell a story about that. I remember being the first time I was in Jerusalem, going down to the old city and I saw one of the predominant religions. I don't want to pick on one, but I saw a group of um, youthful Jews really like picking on a Muslim in the old city. And I saw another, another Jew come up. These are be like pre-stage in our, uh-huh. and kind of have these guys stop harassing him. That is charity. And that looks similar as when you reach out a hand to someone in Provo that doesn't look exactly like you, that maybe is struggling with same gender attraction or maybe has had a challenge with the word of wisdom or whatever the case may be like that translates integrity translates around the world. I've seen dishonesty and I've seen honesty here in Provo and all over the world. I remember when Sally and I were in Istanbul one time, we were brand new on the ground. We were late to something. I think our flight arrived late. We changed some money real quickly, jumped on a, in a cab, felt a little uneasy about this guy. He got us there we only had, you know, certain bills and big bills because we had just quickly changed money. We exchanged the money. It didn't feel good. He tried to get more, you know, whatever. He gives us some money back. We were not familiar enough with the currency. We get out, try to go to our next event and use this money. And they're like, oh, this money's been out of print for like a decade. Like this oh, wow. is bad money. Yeah. So anyways, that's dishonesty. I've, you know, we experienced that here in Provo. So these principles, my point is these principles unite us, Kurt. No matter your race, ethnicity, religion, even righteous principles or principles of truth, like charity, integrity, et cetera, those look the same anywhere around the world. And we can unite around those. Secondly, as Latter-day Saints, obviously, we're, I think we're unified by covenant. No matter where you go in the church, when you're baptized, it's the same prayer and covenant. You go through the temple, rich or poor, black or white, male or female, the covenants are the same. The covenants are what unite us as a people and something that I think binds our hearts together. And so this is something that I spoke a lot about um, as a bishop. You, we all know the, probably the famous Brigham Young quote, like living with the saints in heaven is bliss and glory, but living here on earth with the saints is quite a different story. Have you heard that? <laughs> I, I love that quote. It's quite a different story here yeah. on earth. Um, but we can be unified in principle when we treat each other with respect and charity and integrity, et cetera, and kindness. And then of course we're, we're unified via covenant in a unique way in the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I don't think there's another church on the earth that has quite this covenant binding aspect that we have on our hearts as a community. And it's just powerful. Yeah. So for maybe a bishop out there who's trying to stimulate you know, unity in their, their ward, uh, it, it, because it can feel like, you know, going, doing these covenant practices, you can go through the motions. Like we did our ward temple nights and, <laughs> you know, nobody ever really comes or, you know, and we can stand up and talk about these unifying us, but how, how can we really like in practice on, on the ground, what does that look like as far as unifying others through these covenants we make? Yeah. Well, I, on the ground, it looks like preaching that and living that. So the reason I think that we had so many people often at our temple nights 
and other, we had such a feeling of unity in our ward was because we preached it consistently. Meaning I preached it from the pulpit, my relief study president, my primary president, you know, all, all, they were all on board. They preached it and then we lived it. It doesn't matter what you preach if you don't live it. Mm -hmm. So then we'd have activities where we would invite the entire neighborhood. We Mm -hmm. would have everyone in our neighborhood come. It wasn't about a church activity. It was about a neighborhood activity and inviting people not of our faith to come. So I think the practices are preaching it consistently and then living it. People care much more about what you do than what you say. And so if you do those things, I think you can... You can create unity. You can create Zion, so to speak, which is why what we spoke about five or 10 minutes ago is so painful when we compare and compete and trash on each other when we want this unity, you know, we don't want disunity or disharmony. Yeah. Yeah. That's helpful. And and really going back to the message of grace, when we preach grace, like people want to be a part of that. And and when we realize how much grace is in these covenants, it's like, oh, I want to engage in that rather than it's not a measuring stick or, you know, to, to define us one way or the other, we're all saved by that grace. And we want to be unified in that. But like you so wisely said a a little bit ago and like we all kids experience. So I'm not taking my children out of this or yours, (laughs) but, and like we experienced growing up, I bet Kurt, I don't know your Uh full background, but I bet it was kind of like tucking you in. I love you so much. Like you said, Uh but like, I also have these expectations Uh when we let grace really permeate our relationships. And then there's not a, but it's about, I love you. And I would love for you to take this path because I think it's the best path. And this has been my experience. But even if you don't choose this path, you got to know, I love you regardless, period, end of sentence. Uh If people feel that, especially our children, I think it leads to good results. And I think it's crucial and critical that we have that. Yeah, that's awesome. The fear versus faith, anything we haven't hit on in that uh, realm? Yeah, again, it's interesting. I was in India. And I read a book called Solve for Happy. It's a really good book. I highly recommend it. While I was in India and Kathmandu and Tibet in China, I read this book and I was on the Varanasi River, which is like the holy river in India. It's where all Hindus go to be baptized. Like It's kind of like Mecca or pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. They go to Varanasi. And Varanasi is one of the most fascinating, by the way, places on earth. It's the most densely populated city in the world. And it is just fascinating. And it's, you sit there and I was reading this book, Saul for happy, looking at these Hindus on my left, you had this huge crematorium. They cremate themselves and dumping, literally seeing bodies burned, dead bodies burned. And then their ashes being swept or pushed into the Ganges river. Oh wow! It's floating downstream and like a hundred yards downstream, there are Hindus baptizing themselves in the river. I mean, the ashes oh, wow. are going right into the river and I, I just thought about life and death in a whole different way in yeah. India than I ever had before. And I just realized that so often as Latter-day Saints, as people, but I think in, as Latter-day Saints, we let mistakes of the past cloud our judgment and it makes us have bad decisions in the current now. Mm. We think, I can't come back. I can't repent. I can't do this or that. And so we make decisions based out of fear and that's not good because of mistakes in the past. The atonement's here for a reason. We can let those go. And then we also project into the future, right? We've been talking about expectations into the future. And we have an unknown future. None of us, I had no idea. If I would have known 
that I'd be running for governor and co- a global pandemic was going to hit to make it <laughs> virtually impossible for a no name for a smaller non named political person to win, I would have never gotten the race. We COVID has reminded us that we don't know the future. We don't control the future. So while the future is unknown and unknowable per se, I think that we often have, we make decisions based out of a fear of an unknown future that again, cloud our judgment and have us make bad decisions. And so I think that faith is the antithesis of fear and that we need to make decisions based out of faith and uh, based on faith and not out of fear. Yeah. Yeah. That's helpful. And and that very applicable in the entrepreneurial world, right? I mean, (laughs) there's not a lot of certainty there a lot of times and you have to step into it. It is applicable there. I also think it's applicable to really applicable to our church cultures and to our awards and stakes. Yeah. That's awesome. The narrowness of the way versus broadening the net for the church. This is a, uh, this, we can go on and on about this, but where, where, (laughs) where can we uh, sum it up? Well, I think it's really interesting. You know, Spencer Fluman, the director of the Maxwell Institute, was on the Extraordinary Oz podcast, my podcast last season, and we spoke a little bit about this. I've been uh-huh. thinking about it ever since. I want to ask you a question, Kurt, with okay. this. I'm just curious. Wait, what's going on here? Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm just flipping the tables here. Right. Hey, I have a podcast too, so I'm flipping. Yeah, you're good. Um, if you had to say, based on your experience, your travels, your mission, et cetera, et cetera, three or four things that the church is most known for, what do you think? What do you? I'm saying in the world. Not in, you know, like, okay. what are the things the church is most known for in I, your experience? Uh, I would say polygamy, temples, and underwear. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think those are good. Uh, I Mitt, mean, Mitt Romney, maybe you throw that one yeah, in there. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I would say polygamy, which uh-huh. we don't want. Let's not talk on that uh-huh. here in this podcast, but then let's put that to the side. It's a total, I would say families, I hope, oh, sure. which is a good one. Yeah. I maybe went for the more cynical ones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, but then I'd say the word of wisdom, actually. Oh yeah. Again, traveling the world, uh-huh. you know, again, I was just in Egypt and Jordan. They drink uh, coffee and tea kind of constantly. Uh-huh. And so when you don't drink coffee and tea, it's like an anomaly and very interesting. Right. And the point is there's been members of the church all over the world. And I think that the word of wisdom is something that we're really known for. Hmm. And I guess my point in all this is, unfortunately, we didn't say Jesus Christ. You know, yeah. another one might be the Book of Mormon. I think yeah, the sure. Book of Mormon is one, but- we didn't say Jesus Christ. Like that's what we want to be known for. So I think we're in a really interesting moment that I discussed with Spencer and that I think we're all grappling with right now in the church's history where we're trying to broaden the net. We're trying to face and square up our shoulders and reach our mandate in terms of, you know, helping salvation come to all the sons and daughters of God on the earth. Yet we really narrow that way via a lot of means, including like the word of wisdom. You think of the word of wisdom. I I think of what a a barrier, quote unquote, or potential impediment that is to, you know, Muslims around the world. I'm thinking into the future that that is just so cultural that they drink coffee and tea. And and is that really crucial to the gospel of Jesus Christ? I don't know. I'm not answering these questions. These are thoughts that I'm having. And so I think, and, and of course, the most nuanced and important and probably sensitive issue around this right now is obviously same gender attraction mm-hmm. in the church. Like what is the path for a same gender attracted member of the church? What is their path within the gospel, within the church plan? And um, I think that's something that we're grappling with. How do we broaden the net to bring in more of heavenly father's children while, you know, balancing that with what we know from scripture is kind of the narrowness of the way. What are your yeah. thoughts on that? I'm curious. Well, yeah, that's the thing. It's the, uh, 
reconciling the love and law of it all, right? That, you know, we obviously we want to make, facilitate the path to the Savior as smooth as possible, but there's also this sanctifying nature of standards, right? Like the grace is there, the justification, but then there's that sanctification. And, and how can we position that so it's more of uh, rooted in the purpose of sanctification to help us become rather than, well, you just have to jump over these hurdles because that's yeah. just what we do. Right. Yeah. And, and cause I think, you know, and I'm not a proponent of, you know, getting rid of the, or changing the, the word of wisdom, but how can we position it or frame it in a way that it's less of a, it's just what we do, but more of a, this is a covenant relationship where we are finding a deeper purpose to ourselves and becoming closer to God. Not, not because we, you know, have some, you know, old uh, research study shows that coffee's bad for you. And that's why, you know, it's not about the health. Yeah. It's yeah. about the covenant. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, uh, but it, it is that, and I think this is where leaders need to sit with and have these discussions rather than dismiss it. Like, you know, going back to LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, it's easy just to dismiss that and say, well, you are, that's a sinful life. And like, when you come around and realize that's a sinful life, I'll be here. But instead, what if we say, well, come sit by me, tell me your story. Yeah. You know, I think that's where the answer lies. And again, not that we're a proponent of changing, you know, marriages or defining it differently, but it's like, how do we begin to grapple by inviting them to sit with us rather than dismissing? Because that's sinful. Right? Yeah. One of the things that I like that Spencer, our current governor, Governor Cox, talks about is becoming proximate with those that are mm -hmm. different than us. Mm -hmm. So you can take this Republican and Democrat, you become proximate, your neighbors are Democrats, and you sit shoulder to shoulder with them like you you said, and you realize, wait a second, these guys are a lot more like me than I thought or realized. And by the way, they're not bad. Two of my dearest friends on earth struggle with same gender attraction. They're members of the church, faithful members of the church. You could never convince me based on my shoulder to shoulder experience with me, them, based on my weeping with them, based on my laughing and having life experiences with them, that they're if they're not making it to heaven, I don't think I am, quote unquote. You know, like <laughs> yeah. these are saints in the truest sense. And so when we get proximate with people and yeah, sit shoulder to shoulder with them, like you said, we see them in a more correct light. We see them more like God sees them and we realize that this, you know, that's not what this is about. The reason I was thinking about the word of wisdom, it's just because personally, I had my temple recommend interviews just Sunday, a couple of days ago. And you know, I don't remember this from two years ago. Maybe it was changed within the last two years or maybe it happened last one, but do you, they've changed that question. Uh -huh. Do you under, do you know this? Do you yeah, yeah. understand the word of wisdom Right, right. and yeah. do you strive to keep it? I, I, they, when I gave temple recommend interviews and at least since I have in the last couple of years, that's a new, like, do you understand? And my question to Latter day saints and do we understand it? You yeah. know, I see the lines at the door at some of our favorite, I'm not going to name them because favorite soda places. I see the amount of ice cream that I eat personally or, or meat, red meat, whatever the case may be. Do we understand the word of wisdom and are we striving to really live the spirit of the law? And the reason I brought the whole thing up, like you said, this isn't the purpose of your podcast. It's none of our purpose to, to change the church per se, but I guess I'm just, I think of the word of wisdom and other things as this keeping people away from the gospel of Jesus Christ or mm -hmm. keeping people away from the church of Jesus, the restored church and gospel. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be really interesting as, as millennials, you know, come into uh, church leadership continually. And as we continue to grow, our generation 
Kurt continues yeah. to grow older. How will the church change? How will it be different? Thank goodness for President Nelson, an inspired and super dynamic and active prophet. But I'm just excited to see how we continue to, as a culture and as a church, broaden the net so that there are more fish that are attracted to the good things about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. I mean, these again, these are worth conversations having, and uh, th- there's a lot of good that come out of just being in proximity to some of these things. Also, seeking understanding, not just necessarily compliance, right? Yeah. Do you understand the word of wisdom? Do you understand the LGBTQ experience in life and as it as it relates in proximity with the church and whatnot? So, yeah. one of the one of my least favorite words in the world. I have a couple. That, I hate the word fair, <laughs> but I also hate the word tolerance. Mm. Like you're tolerating. I have tolerant, like you're tolerating someone. No one should be tolerated, just tolerated. Like you're here. We're tolerating your sin mistake or you. No, we we're trying to understand Mm -hmm. you. We're trying to understand your differences. We're trying to love you more perfectly. We're trying to serve you better, not tolerate, you know, not interesting. That's great. Well, this has been fantastic, Jeff. And, um, like you mentioned, you have a podcast. I want to make sure you get a good solid plug here because I've listened to it and this isn't, you know, everybody who doesn't have a podcast these days, but (laughs) no, you've done a really good job and, and you got some great connections and interesting people on there. Uh, but where, yeah, where I appreciate that, go? Kurt. Yeah, people can find me at Jeff Burningham on social media, in most social medias, and and then yeah, I started podcasting. It's funny. So I announced it on the Capitol steps, September 2019, that I was running for governor. A lot of people there. It was really fun. A beautiful fall morning, and I immediately went on the roadshow circuit. And I sat down with Boyd Matheson, the opinion editor mm-hmm. at Deseret News. Um, and at noon, we talked over lunch on KSL at the day I launched. And it's funny, I took my headphones off and I'm like, Boyd, this is one of the specific things I learned from running from governor. And I said, Boyd, I really like radio. Like, I like. And so I did a ton of radio the next year running for governor. Rural radio is really important, by the way, in, in rural Utah and huh. in rural counties all across the United States. Radio is still really important. And after coming out of the governor's race, such a you know caustic, just hard uh, situation in terms of media and other things and criticism... I just wanted some good uplifting content. So yeah, I launched a podcast, the Extraordinary Us podcast. And really I see, I'm kind of doing, trying to do what you're doing, but in a totally different way. I'm not talking overtly about leading saints, but I'm having interesting conversations with like the Huntsman's, John and Mary Kay Huntsman and Boyd Matheson and coach Mark Pope. And so business leaders, government leaders, sports figures, and just talking about life, talking about what they've learned, what they've observed. And yeah, it's a new up and coming podcast. I would love everyone to, of course, subscribe. You can find it wherever podcasts are. Extraordinary Us. And And uh, it's not necessarily a Latter-day Saint podcast, though. You don't shy away from it. It's not a Latter-day Saint podcast at all. It's been mainly Utah-centric just because I kind of wanted to focus on Utah first yeah. coming out of the governor's race. Really what I wanted to do was highlight, Kurt, like all the awesome things and people that are all around us every day. We all take for granted the beautiful place we live, the amazing people that are all around us. And again, having come out of the governor's race where people are throwing arrows and criticizing, I wanted to say, man, I just met thousands, tens of thousands honest, good-working, great people all around the state, I kind of want to tell their stories. Hmm. And so that was kind of the reason and the impetus for the podcast. 
And so there is a Utah focus, but yeah, a lot of non-members are on the podcast as well. And we're having a lot more guests outside of uh, Utah as well. So Cool. Yeah, check it out if if you're interested, and I I appreciate you bringing it up. Yeah, I absolutely. I endorse it fully, so it's a, it's a good one. All right, last question I have for you, Jeff. Just reflecting on your life as a leader, both a business leader, a political leader for for some time, and and a church leader. How has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? Yeah, the the crucible of leadership, right? I think that I failed a lot, and so that failure, dusting myself back up, getting back up. And then looking to the Savior to kind of heal and repair my heart, like we've spoken about, making it more like His, that's what's helped me grow closer to Him. And that's what's helped me become a better disciple. I think discipleship is all about our hearts becoming more like His. And when we lead, we're going to fail. We're going to make mistakes. And we're going to have opportunities to rely on Jesus. And anytime we can rely on Him... I think is a good time. And uh, that that's what's really helped me mostly, I think, in my discipleship and coming closer to my Savior. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. We'd love to hear from you about your questions or thoughts or comments. You can either leave a comment on the uh, post related to this episode at leadingsaints.org or go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us your perspective or questions. If there's other episodes or topics you'd like to hear on the Leading Saints podcast, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and share with us the information there. And we would love for you to share this with any individual you think this would apply to, especially maybe individuals in your ward council or other leaders that you may know who would really appreciate the perspectives that we discussed. And I remind you once again to text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to subscribe to the Leading Saints weekly newsletter. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And When the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.